Good morning. The second lesson this morning comes from the final chapter in the Gospel of Luke. I will read chapter 24, verses 44 through 49. Here now, just before the resurrected Jesus ascends into heaven, what he says, his final words to his disciples. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Messiah is to suffer and arise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and see, I am sending upon you what my father promised, so stay here in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you please pray with me? God, we ask you to shed the light of Christ upon us that we might see more clearly what you would have us to see and know. Amen. For better or worse, proverbial sayings have a way of sticking around. Supposedly, they convey some some bit of wisdom about life. So we pass easy to remember sayings down to our children and they pass them down to their children. This morning's scripture that Habib read to us focuses on a proverbial saying that was popular in ancient Israel and that God chose to dispute. As we heard in our scripture lesson, the proverb went like this. If fathers eat sour grapes, the teeth of sons will grate. The point of this saying in the ancient world was to caution parents with regard to their behaviors, choices, and attitudes. Parents needed to take care and live righteously so they wouldn't bring harm to the next generation. <laughs> By the time the prophet Ezekiel was living, when a large segment of the Israelites, including him, had been exiled to Babylon, this proverb had taken on a new meaning. Instead of teaching proactive caution, it was being used to convey the notion that the future and fate of a whole generation had already been sealed and delivered by the sins of prior generations. God chose to dispute this. In fact, I think it could be argued that everything God chose to accomplish in the life, crucifixion, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ was to dispute this. This terribly hopeless, self-defeating, destructive notion, this notion that God knew could never lead to any good end, this notion that has such far-reaching tentacles and gripping power that generation after generation, we cannot seem to rid ourselves of it. The notion 
that successive generations pay for the sins of previous generations continues to reverberate today. We hear and feel this reverberation in warnings about the damage, some of it irreversible, that we are causing on the world's environment and ecosystems. The choices that we and other industrial nations have made surely have consequences for which our children and their children will pay. The consequences of the action and inaction by older generations seem to be gaining greater attention as youth and children have recently been bringing climate lawsuits against governments. You may have heard how a group of 16 youth ranging from the age of 5 to 22 won the first youth-led climate trial in the United States. They accused the state of Montana for shirking its constitutional obligation to protect and maintain a clean and healthful environment for them and future generations by refusing to assess the impact of greenhouse gas emissions. Youth in Hawaii are preparing to bring a similar legal case against the Department of Transportation in that state. The European Court of Human Rights recently heard a case brought by six youth against 33 European governments to spur stronger climate change mitigation measures. The notion that later generations should pay for the sins of earlier generations reverberates in our country's ongoing debates about reparations to African Americans and to indigenous Americans for the legacies of racism. The idea that the sins of, or the guilt of former generations have a legacy with which present and future generations must reckon is not new. As the ancient proverb indicates, human beings have been grappling with the problem of generational sin for a very long time. It's hard to draw a clean line between consequences of generational sin and culpability for generational sin. Part of the reason why it's so messy is that the legacies passed down from one generation to the next is not simply physical and material. They are also moral and emotional. Social workers and health professionals, as they work with families who have been caught up in multi-generational cycles of domestic violence have found that those who have been victims of domestic abuse and violence are at greater risk than others to become themselves perpetrators of abuse and violence. What research has been showing is that traumatic violence has longer lasting effects than we may have previously recognized. The traumatic violence that a person has either perpetrated or undergone gets transmitted to the next generation. So far, this has been studied up to three generations, and those studies show that both the children and the grandchildren of people who have undergone significant life traumas are affected by the negative experiences of the first generation. In her study of how traumatic violence gets transmitted in families across three generations, Rachel Lev Wiesel, a professor at University of Haifa in Israel, 
interviewed, among others, a Jewish family whose older members survived the Holocaust and an Arab Muslim family forced by the Israeli government to relocate from their home in the Palestinian village of Ikrit. In her interviews of family members across three generations, she found that one of the ways that each family transmitted the trauma was by passing down what she calls a family mission. For example, each member of the Jewish family expressed a common mission, which was to remember the Holocaust, never to forget what happened, and to transmit this charge to coming generations. For the Arab Muslim family, the members of each generation could easily articulate a family mission to return to their former home in Ikrit and regain their homeland. It seems to me that the transmission of trauma from one generation to the next and the way the families charge the next generation with these missions are part of what make the Israeli-Palestinian conflict so intractable. As long as these are the mission statements being passed down, how can we expect any peace and reconciliation between Israeli, Jewish Israelis and Palestinians? How older generations speak about the trauma that they have endured or inflicted and how they transmit that trauma to their children matter. It can be cautionary, it can be constructive, it can be fatalistic, it can be retributive. In my own family, on my mother's side, one of the traumas that my 13 cousins and I know about is the imprisonment and torture that our grandfather underwent at the hands of the Japanese. My mother's father had been in charge of the Korean teachers teaching in a high school during Japan's occupation of Korea when in 1945, as World War II was coming to an end, and it looked like the Japanese were losing, Japanese authorities arrested my grandfather on the grounds that the Korean teachers under his charge seemed to be secretly happy that the Japanese were losing the war. <coughs> Japanese authorities took him as a political prisoner down to Seoul, far away from the northern city where he and my mother's family lived. And until the war ended, he remained in prison and was tortured there. While the three oldest children, including my mother, remember the night of his arrest, the trauma was transmitted to their younger siblings and to the next generation through their memories. It wasn't until 1987, however, that I actually heard the vestige of a family mission. When my sister needed a car to drive to and from her first internship in a suburb of Chicago, my parents decided they needed to buy a reliable Toyota Corolla for her. And hearing about it, my uncle questioned how they could dare buy a Japanese-made car. If I had to articulate the family mission that rarely reared its head but was definitely present, it might be something like, Never trust the Japanese. They will always think they are better than you. Unfortunately, anti-Japanese and anti-Korean sentiments continue today between the two peoples. 
And still, the majority of Koreans feel that the Japanese have not sufficiently apologized for their colonial rule and the enslavement of Korean women as comfort women. All of us have inherited legacies from our families and from our larger society. By no choice of our own, we are situated in familial and social contexts that bear the moral and immoral imprints of past generations. Sometimes the immoral weight of our context, of the systems and structures that hold up our social order feels so overwhelmingly oppressive that we feel paralyzed about what to do. God, I believe, knew what was at stake when the ancient Israelites started to treat the proverbial saying, if fathers eat sour grapes, the teeth of sons will grate, no longer as a way to motivate parents to live righteously, but instead as an expression of inevitability. God must have known the utter dangerousness of this line of thinking. When it comes to our individual lives as well as the collective social order in which we live, God holds each generation and each person in it accountable, not for the moral and immoral legacies we have inherited, but for the morality or immorality of our own actions in response to what we have inherited. So many of the collective problems we are facing today have been inherited. The past casts long shadows. Given the nature of how trauma is generationally transmitted in families and societies, given the systems and structures that perpetuate injustices, and given how economically, ecologically, and technologically interconnected the world is, we are going to have to figure out how to disrupt the legacies we have received and what legacies we want to transmit to the next generation. In the Gospel of Luke, just before the resurrected Jesus made his ascension into heaven, Jesus gave his disciples their mission. He gave them a message to proclaim, to transmit to the ends of the earth and to all successive generations. In Luke's Gospel, Jesus commissioned them to proclaim repentance and forgiveness beginning at home and going out to all nations. This is our family mission. It's very different, radically different from a family mission to never forget what happened or to return to and regain our homeland or never to trust the Japanese because they'll always think they're better than us. Those family missions are understandable, they are natural, but they are not divine. They will not recreate the world into something new. They will not give us life, and we need to cut them off. As the body of Christ, we bear the marks of violent trauma. We have inherited the story of Jesus, 
unjustly imprisoned, tortured, and crucified. The anti-Semitism that arose from this history, while understandable and natural, was not divine. It only led to more of the same violence. The legacy Christ gave us instead, in his example and in our family mission, was the charge to repent and to forgive. That is the work for each of us to do. No new life can begin without that. If we are to be a new creation, if the old life is to be gone and a new life is to begin, that must be what we transmit to future generations. Amen.